geography is so important because of our culturally connected world and especially in this time where we have you know a lot of social change going on where we're trying to appreciate other cultures that might be different from us i think all of that starts when our children are really young and they're learning and we can be presenting geography in a way of really appreciating different parts of the world even though you know our kids their world is really small when they start it's our home in our backyard and we have to make their worlds get a little bit bigger and a little bit bigger each year so that by the time they're adults that they have this real respect for all humans all over the world welcome to charlotte mason says i'm john Chindel, here with my wife crystal join us as we read and discuss the home education series Hey everyone, the Charlotte Mason Inspired Online Conference wrapped up as of last weekend with the last workshops happening on Friday, June 26th. That being said, the recorded audio and video is still available for this event, and the whole package is still just $17. These recordings include teachings and workshops given by over 20 homeschooling experts and us. If you missed out on the conference but are still interested, please check out the link in the show notes of this episode, our webpage, our social media pages, or check your email for an update. All right, today we're joined by Megan DeBrill to talk about natural philosophy and geography, two subjects that are right up her alley. Megan is a mother of three, and she also runs Rooted Childhood, which if you're a longtime listener of our show, you've heard that name before. Rooted Childhood offers a seasonal collection of beautiful craft projects and opportunities for connecting with our children. We had a fun time talking with Megan about getting into nature and experiencing the world around us, and I hope you enjoy the conversation. So, enjoy the show. I guess here we go. So today we're joined by by Megan. Um, and Megan, the first question that we like to ask people when they when they uh, join our show is, how did you find Charlotte Mason? I found Charlotte Mason uh, when my oldest daughter was two, and I read For the Children's Sake. And that book just hooked me. And I just knew it was a lifestyle that I wanted to live with my family. And how old's your daughter now? Now she's almost nine. Okay. Oh, wow. All right. And is is she your only one or do you have others as well? I have three now. So I also have a six-year-old and a three-year-old. And oh, okay. so my six-year-old will be starting formal lessons this fall, which is super exciting. That is exciting. <laughs> and then I guess the, the follow-up question to that is how, how are you involved at this point in the online Charlotte, uh, Charlotte Mason community? Yeah, so I had a blog for a long time, and I have just chronicled, you know, our lifestyle and healthy living and things like that, and kind of transitioned into homeschool once I started homeschooling my oldest. And so now I offer some resources for um, families who are interested in Charlotte Mason education, and a lot of my focus is on younger kids and handicrafts and just incorporating more of the lifestyle that I feel like Charlotte Mason was kind of promoting with her method. Well, very cool. What is, what is that, that blog that you run? It is called Rooted Childhood. You can find it at rootedchildhood.com. <laughs> okay. The, the light just went on. The connection was just made. All right. Yeah. Uh, I saw that in his eyes. It's just like, Oh, oh yeah! Oh yeah! We uh, we've talked with you before. We've, we've talked with you before. <laughs> we've we've talked about rooted childhood many a time. <laughs> okay, cool. Well, yes, and I, I know a lot of people who are just getting into Charlotte Mason and listening to your podcast, kind of reading her words for the first time along with you, uh, are looking for like practical ways to start incorporating some of the method. And I feel like that's what I try to offer people. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, I know the last time uh, we, we ran, I think it was a, it was for a month. We ran, we ran some ads on our show and we looked into your program and it, it looked really awesome. And there was a lot of cool it stuff. It is there. really awesome. It's, it's really, and uh, you, you gave us some amount of it. I don't remember, but, <laughs> but we, 
it was really cool. So That's to nice. all of our listeners out there, if you're if you're looking for for something for handicrafts and other other cool things to do, definitely look up Rooted Childhood because it's awesome stuff. <laughs> all right, well, and we get to talk about chapters sixteen and seventeen. Yeah, natural philosophy and, and geography, mm-hmm. which natural philosophy I was uh, it. I, I had the wrong uh, assumption about what this chapter would be about. I thought, well, philosophy, therefore it's about, I don't know, philosophizing or something. <laughs> that's, that's not the system all. of thinking. Yeah. A system of thinking. We're going to, we're going to be talking about like Greek philosophy and <laughs> no, I was totally wrong. That's, that's not what we're talking about here. So she starts out, she says of the teacher of natural philosophy, I'll only remind the reader what has been said in an earlier chapter, that there is no part of a child's education more important than that he should lay by his own observation a wide basis of facts towards scientific knowledge in the future. He must live hours daily in the open air and as far as possible in the country. He must look and touch and listen, must be quick to note consciously every every peculiarity of habit or structure in beast, bird, or insect, the manner of growth and fructification of every plant. That's a cool word. And he must be accustomed to ask why. So this earlier chapter is all of part two. Where she talks a lot about being outside and how to spend time outside and how to, as mother, uh, facilitate children doing these activities that she's about to be talking about. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we did spend a lot of time talking about that. That's why she doesn't want to repeat herself. Right, because why, sh- why should she? So, yes, yeah, uh, she, wants, she wants the children to be, to be accustomed to ask why. Why does the wind blow? Why does the river flow? Why is the leaf bed sticky? And, and not to hurry to answer these, but, but you just kind of let his small experiences carry him. So that's, that's what we're talking about here. That's what, that's what natural philosophy is, is kind of the, the start of the knowledge of the natural sciences, I guess. Yeah, I think you could replace philosophy here with science. I think you'd probably be more accurate in today's line of thinking. Yeah, I, I think so too. And I think a lot of what people would call just nature study today would fit here with that too. That you're really starting with being outside and getting those experiences outside. And that's the beginning of nature study and understanding the world around you. Yeah. That's, that's a, that's cool. So then she, she dives into this story about eyes and no eyes. Um, she, she talks about a, a method shown in this evenings at home. Did you look up if that was a book? I or? forgot to look that up. Okay. Do you remember the, the gal's name? I've looked that up and I think it was a book. And it had this story of these little children where one has eyes and one does not mm-hmm. <laughs> out on their walks. And yeah. it's just a matter of, it's a matter of paying attention. Yeah. It, it's a matter of paying attention. And that's a habit that we've cult or we're working to cultivate in the children. And so it translates onto your walks. What do you see? What do you hear? What do you feel? And you can just walk and not, hear or see and feel anything just like no eyes did i'm good at that there was a time when we were in santa fe walking along and we walked through this this alleyway almost and (laughs) as we were finishing i was like oh those were some beautiful roses there and he's like huh roses (laughs) what roses there was an entire row that we had just walked by it was like a seven foot wall yes of roses (laughs) and they were fully like i don't i guess they were in bloom they were blooming but yeah, they were in bloom. It was just, just, and I turned back and was like, "Oh yeah, there's like a million roses there." Huh. Yeah. <laughs> so I'm, there's no eyes. I'm I'm great at being um, unobservant. I think, like Crystal said, it really is a habit we have to cultivate. And yeah. I think the further we get into adulthood, maybe we lose that unless we're purposefully focusing on it. So with our children, it's just like she talks so much about it in the previous chapter in chapter two that even with babies, you can start to cultivate that habit on just getting them to notice things. 
and it really is wonderful to see the world through the children's eyes when they're able to pay attention. Yeah. The hard part for me is that slowing down, especially when they're that little, and to, to walk at toddler pace. And I've been doing it for a number of years now because my oldest is eight. So I walk at toddler pace now. And so I'll go on a walk with John and he's like, you're so slow. I'm like, this <laughs> This is how fast I walk now. <laughs> this is life. <laughs> I can I can speed up, but uh, that's not my natural being but anymore. The, but that's the natural pace is, is the pace it's of a toddler. It's really slow because they look at everything and want to smell the flowers. And, oh, look, there's the ants. And so. Yeah. Which is good, which we definitely want to to nurture, Mm -hmm. which is why walking at a toddler's pace is so important. Mm -hmm. Yeah, she says to get this sort of, or she has already tried to point out, to get this sort of instruction for himself is simply the nature of a child. The business of the parent is to afford him abundant and varied opportunities and to direct his observations so that knowing little of the principles of scientific classification, he is unconsciously furnishing himself with the materials for such classification, which is kind of a rehash of everything she's already said. But, but yeah, so that's that's that section. Uh, next, she talks about principles. I don't really have every, anything highlighted or, or anything to pull out of these next couple sections. Because uh, you go you go principles, and, and she, she recommends this book, The Sciences, by Mr. Holden. Well, again, it's getting the knowledge... I didn't look the book up, but okay. it's getting the knowledge for yourself. It's it's looking at these conversations without padding and simple experiments and not not too much of the science part of it, but just t- being able to talk to the child about these things so the child can understand it. I think today when we have so many resources available to us, it's easy to get overwhelmed with how many options there are for books for nature study or resources. And I think these guidelines here are just saying, you know, we're not trying to teach them everything about every single topic, but just what they can understand at their level and experience firsthand. So what they're actually seeing when you're out on your walks or what they can observe with a simple experiment. Um, I think that's important to remember for the younger children. Mm-hmm. Are, are we, are you thinking younger than six or that six to nine year age or both? I think under nine, which is, okay. you know, who she's mainly talking mm-hmm. about in this volume. Yeah. Well, cause any, any more, anything more scientific beyond what you can see and feel and, and what your senses can tell you that takes a different level of understanding. And, and what she's trying to do is she's trying to build a basis for that next level of understanding to be able to happen at a future time. When she was talking about classification, where you as the child can understand from seeing it that the oyster is different than a cat. Yeah. And you don't get told what that classification is. But when you learn it later on, you go, oh, well, I already knew that. Yeah. Yeah. And I think it's the scientific terms of it aren't what matters. It's yeah. the understanding that actually matters. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. All natural phenomenon are orderly. They are governed by law. They are not magical. They are comprehended by someone. So why not the child himself? <laughs> it's not possible to explain every detail of a locomotive to a young pupil, but it's perfectly practicable to explain its principles so that this machine, like others, becomes a mere special case of certain well-understood general laws. And this is talking about the book. This is a preface to that book of principles, the sciences. Which makes sense. I mean, Charlotte Mason has a very high view of children. She has a high view of their ability to, to understand and comprehend. And so it, it makes sense that she's she's willing to give them the time and the space to explore and understand the natural world around them mm-hmm. without just trying to tell them all about it and sit in a science class and teach them. From the textbook. Yeah, teach them from a textbook. Let let the let the world outside be the textbook that teaches them everything. Mm-hmm. Go ahead. Yeah, so the next the next section is uh she's she's talking about a village school and she quotes from Mr. Dawes here. Mr. Dawes, is that somebody? I don't think we've run into him. I, I am I sorry. I forgot to do all my research. I don't think we have. 
done. What's kind of funny, though, is she's now quoted the preface of the book, The Sciences, and took a page and a half to do that. And now she's going to quote Reverend Richard Dawes for the next yeah. no, page and a half. <laughs> well, and I thought I thought this was really interesting. So I, I'm, I'm going to I'm going to skip over huge chunks of writing here because I, I thought this was interesting. She says, or he says, she she quotes him and he says, I aimed at teaching what would be profitable and interesting to persons in the position in life which the children were likely to occupy. I aimed at their being taught what they may be what may be called the philosophy of common things of everyday life. And then over the next two pages, he pulls out those things. He says some properties of air, water, heat. The metals, their sources and properties and uses, light, the mechanical principles of tools more commonly used. And, and that's the end of the list. I mean, that's that's it. So air, water, heat, metals, light, and mechanical principles of tools. So when I was in college, you're, we were required to take two sciences. Just to, to get your, your degree, you had to have two science classes. And I was not a science major. I was an accounting major. So I just, I looked and we had a really good professor and he taught a biology 101 class and for non-majors. And he said, you know what? You guys don't care about cells. You guys don't care about all of the amoebas and all of this little stuff. <laughs> We're going to talk about the practical things. We're going to talk about water. We're going to talk about the heart. We're going to talk about... Uh, the things that matter to you. And that's exactly what he did. They did here. Yeah. And it was, it was so good. And I re remember it and I learned from him and so much more than I would have just a basic class. Right. So this, I, I experienced this <laughs> and it was awesome. One of the criticisms that I hear a lot about Charlotte Mason and sciences in these younger years is that there aren't a lot of hands-on experiments that it's all just nature study and i think this section here shows that it being able to observe and have these real life experiments mm -hmm. of what the children is interested in and, and encountering is really amazing that maybe you're not setting up this artificial science experiment for them but when they walk outside and see their cold breath in the air and you're able to talk about that and simulate different situations, it's really awakening their mind in some amazing ways where they're asking questions and asking why. And I think that's even better than just going through a book of science experiments. One example that pops in my mind with our kids is that uh, it's rained It's rained several times here with the sun out, which is, I don't know, it's always fun when it does that because then there's a rainbow. Well, I learned in college... Uh, you know, we were looking at properties of light and water and prisms and rainbows and all that. Well, you know, that that light hits the raindrops and then bounces off at, I think, like 40 degrees the other I way. I don't know. And so that means that whenever the light is shining while it's raining, the rainbow is going to be on the other side from the sun. And so we were looking for the rainbow once because, you know, it was sunny and it was raining. And so the kids know because because they've experienced that and they were wondering where the rainbow was. And so I've made the offhanded comment, well, the sun's over there. Therefore the rainbow is going to be on the opposite side. It's going to be over there. And it was just a offhanded comment. I didn't, <laughs> I wasn't thinking, well, I've heard them say several times since like, Oh, it's, it's sunny and it's raining. That means the rainbow is going to be, uh, over there. Like, oh, <laughs> you're absolutely right. <laughs> you, you were listening. And oh. so they, they now have this understanding of of light and reflection and e even to a certain extent prisms because they, they've observed the rainbow. Without actually knowing any of those words. Yeah, they, they don't know anything about that, but they've observed it. And that's amazing because when they get into later forms, when they start learning more of the science behind it, they're going to be able to draw on that. And know, oh, like that's why that happens and be able to have that real life observation. It's really amazing how it all fits together. Yeah. Which which helps the sciences come alive. I mean, we have so much right now in our schools about STEM, you know, science, technology, uh, was engineering, engineering and mathematics. Math. 
And and so much of that is all book knowledge. And, and book knowledge is good and it has its place. And, and Charlotte Mason says that it has its place. But so much of it is just dry knowledge that you attain so that, uh, you know, it, it doesn't really stick. You learn it for the test, you take the test, and then you forget the, the, the mass, the vast majority of it. Whereas, and like you said, when the children are, are able to draw on their experiences and remember something about it, then they're going to remember that for the rest of their lives because it's a real thing. It's, a, it's an actual tangible thing to know that light, when it hits a prism, turns into a rainbow at a certain number of degrees. And they're, they're just going to know that. Yep. So one of the things I feel like, just like uh, delaying formal education till about the age of six, I feel like that's because there is a, a distinct turning point, a distinct, and you, you might have seen this with your, your um, children as well, where they are ready to learn and they're ready to sit down and actually think about these things and uh, learn academically. And I feel like there's going to be another turn in the future where the learning of the book knowledge will need to take place and is a good time for it to take place. Yeah, I, I totally agree with that. Because you've got that physical now and then they'll get the the capacity to understand the whys. And I think, I think like to your point, I think that's why she doesn't specifically address sciences in a, a more technical capacity than just nature study in those young years, than in these years nine and under. Yeah, I think it's really enough to just do the nature study because you're getting exposed to all of these different things. And I think you're right that, you know, as babies and toddlers, it's enough for them just to see these things. We don't have to belabor it or make it schooly for them. They just need to be out in the world experiencing these things. And then I think there is a shift once they are closer to five and six, where they start asking those questions about, well, why does that happen? And then we can start going into it a little bit more. And then the older they get, the deeper those questions become. Yeah. I'm, I'm excited for, I'm excited to see that. It'll, to experience that change. Yeah, to experience that change and, and experience that continuum of, of learning and, and see where it takes them. It'll be fun. Uh, he and at the at the end of this section, because she basically just quotes other people for the vast majority of this section. I, I feel like she's already said her piece, but she needs to have natural natural philosophy as a part of this because it is so important. So she wants it as one of her lessons. But she's already talked about it, so she's just going to quote some people. <laughs> but she said she she does finish this out, and she says one thing: one thing is to be borne in mind that nothing should be done without its due experiment. Well, I'm going to back up real quick. I've got I've got a quote before that. Go for it. The distinguishing mark of nature's laws is their extreme simplicity. It may doubtless require the intellect of a higher order to make the discovery of those laws. And yet, once evolved, they're within the capacity of a child. In short, the principles of natural philosophy are the principles of common sense. Mm. And if taught in a simple, common sense way, they will be speedily understood and eagerly attended to by God's children. I'm sorry, attended to by children. And it will be found that with pupils from even 10 to 12 years of age, much may be done towards forming habits of observation and inquiry. And our our pastor's recently been talking about God's law versus nature's law and how the two will always agree. And so hearing this, the distinguishing mark of nature's law is its, is its extreme simplicity. It's the same. You know, God's law is extremely simple where you need maybe a higher order to discover the law and to write it and read it or to write it and explain it. But once it's that's done, it can be explained to children. Yeah. So that was that was something I found interesting. It is. I actually had most of that highlighted. I just <laughs> completely looked over it. 
Yeah, I think that's a great quote and a great guiding principle for when we're teaching natural philosophy and nature study to our kids that it doesn't have to be complicated because nature and God's law has taken care of all of that for us, that it is a really orderly, simple thing. And, you know, if we're just focused on uh, making the observations, and knowing what's happening in nature, we don't have to throw in lots of extra information or things like that. We can just focus on what's happening. Mm-hmm. That makes sense. Oh, she had a quote somewhere else about where the child has been given so much stuff and it's their job to sift through the straw. And when you said, you know, just give them the basics, not all the extras. But I think it's in the history chapter. That's not ringing a bell to me. I'm sorry. But yeah, just just keeping it as simple as we can without without throwing all the extra fluff in. Which is really hard because we want to throw all of that stuff in because it's it's where we learn and telling and telling the kids these things. Mm-hmm. And this goes back to even creating unit studies. And why she's against it. It's like the the learning is done by the teacher in that point, at that point, not not the not the child. Right. And I think here we need to be really careful to let nature be the teacher and not us. And one thing I always like to do, especially since my kids are young still, is if there's a subject that I feel compelled to like all this information out about I try to go learn more about it so like recently we found a um a silkworm caterpillar Mm. and we went and visited it the day after we found it and it was making its cocoon which is completely fascinating and amazing and um I just was so fascinated by it but I didn't want to take away from my kids just watching that and seeing it and seeing the process of it happening. So I went and got a book about butterflies and moths and all their things. So I'm reading that for myself and I'm sure that information is going to come in handy in a few years, but right now with eight, six and three year olds, they don't need all that. Like it's a book like four inches (laughs) thick. So I'm going to save that for myself. That's that's a really good technique where where you want to learn more about it, but you're learning for yourself and not for your children yet. That's I like that. Thank you. Anything else for natural philosophy or I guess natural science? I don't as we would call it. I think that's good. All right. Well, then geography is where we go next. And I just have to say, I I told my daughter we were going to talk about geography and she got so giddy because it is her absolute (laughs) favorite subject. Nice. (laughs) That's fun. I think it's one of Charlotte Mason's favorite subjects too. Um, Well, she says here it's a subject of high educational value. Well, she, she does clarify. It says it geography is to my mind in my opinion, right? <laughs> I-M-H-O. <laughs> well, she did write a couple of geography books. Oh, that's right. She before. did. Mm-hmm. And it seems to be her her passion subject. The one that she's like, nobody teaches it the way it needs to be taught. And it is so important, but not the way we're teaching it right now. So let's get this right, and it'll be amazing and of high educational value. And I find it so interesting that she wrote this so long ago, and geography still taught the same yes. way today yeah. that she would completely disagree with. Yep. We, uh, we just did a presentation for the Charlotte Mason Inspired Online Conference looking at the the thoughts of Charlotte Mason from a hundred years ago versus the educational thoughts of today. And, and that, that would have been a fun addition to that talk saying that, mm-hmm. look, a hundred years ago, she was saying, she was saying this about the geography system then. 
And it's taught the same way now that it was then. And she's still yeah. right. <laughs> it, it's interesting how, how much she talked about then is applicable today. Yeah, I would even say more applicable today because we are a more connected world than we were back in her day that we're interacting with people from all over the world way more than, you know, in her time because we have the internet and social mm -hmm. media and all that. So it's even more important to understand different countries and the people who live there and different cultures. Mm -hmm. Yeah. There's a greater likelihood that we will either meet them virtually or be even able to travel there. Yeah. You know, there's airplanes. <laughs> the, the, those things do exist now. They didn't exist when she was writing these books. Yeah. And I think it's interesting to note that she wrote her geography books before she wrote these volumes, that it really was kind of her passion, like you said, that it was something that she wrote and she didn't even know she was going to have this whole method at that point. Mm-hmm. Yeah, which is something I hadn't honestly realized until we were preparing for this talk for the, the conference, yeah. that she wrote a bunch of books even before these books. <laughs> I think there were five geography books she wrote, and those are the proceeds from those were what allowed, were what sustained her and allowed her to, to dive into educational philosophy. She was, a, she was an influencer over time, I guess. <laughs> Before Instagram. Yes. Yes. She was an Instagram influencer before Instagram. <laughs> the peculiar value of geography lies in its fitness to nourish the mind with ideas and to furnish the imagination with pictures. Herein lies the educational value of geography. Not just classification, not just a science. Not just several sciences, not even just the problems, but the ideas and the pictures and the imagination. I was going to say, I think that line is just so important for how she approaches geography and how different that is than just thinking about maps or learning longitude and latitude and technical things that were really if we think about the end goal with our children, we're thinking about getting them to be able to see or hear the word India and be able to see it in their minds, to see what the land looks like, what the people are wearing and speaking and what kinds of foods they eat and really have that full, beautiful picture. Yeah. Well, and she says, everybody wants the sort of information which the geography lesson should afford. This is true and is to be borne in mind in the schoolroom. The child's geography lessons should furnish just the sort of information which grown-up people care to possess. Those, those cultural things, those things that we're interested in knowing about not only land, but people mm -hmm. and, and cultures and, and activities and all, all of those things that we've, we're very interested in. Well, I, I like this whole, she starts talking about how they learn the capitals and the rivers and the summits and miles and feet and population and, you know, imports and exports. And Poor little fellow. The lesson is hard work to him. But as far as education goes, you know, that is the developing of power and the furnishing of the mind. He would be better employed in watching the progress of a fly across the windowpane. <laughs> I just, I love it. <laughs> And like you're saying, you know, we as adults, what do we want to read? We want to read the book of travel that's graphic with a spice of personal adventure. Even going about with Murray in hand, we skip the dry facts and go to the suggestive pictorial scraps. These are the things we want. But, oh, don't let the children have that. None of this pleasant padding for the poor child, if you please. Do not let him have the little pictorial sentences that he may dream over. Facts and names and figures. These are the pablablum for him. So, no travel bloggers? <laughs> Which I think this is where we have a huge advantage as well for all the documentaries and yeah. the audiovisual media that we can actually see it, not just 
in our mind's eye, not just a word description, but actually see it. Yeah, I think, I mean, with YouTube and documentaries, we definitely have an advantage of what, over what she had. In our home, I try to make sure that we're learning firsthand, letting the kids get the picture in their mind from the books we're reading. So some kind of a firsthand account of the place that we're learning about. Let them make the picture in their mind. We talk about it. And then eventually we'll see it somehow for real, either mm. on a documentary or something. And I love seeing how the picture looks different than what they imagined. And we can talk about um, how it was different or the same or what kinds of things that they want to learn more about. That's really cool. I remember doing that when I was in school with Gettysburg, the the Civil War battlefield. And I remember study, we were studying the Civil War and we did, you know, we we did a decent amount there. I I memorized the the speech that uh, Abraham Lincoln gave, um, you know, four score and seven years ago. I don't remember any of it beyond that. Uh, but but I I you know it was a it was a big thing. And then we went to Gettysburg, and and were physically there to walk the battlefield, mm-hmm. and you know feel the weight of of everything that happened there. And it was such a surreal experience to be like, well, this is the thing that we've been reading about for the last, you know, three months. And then to come here and experience it firsthand and, and see, see the rise up the Rocky Hill where, where a a charge happened and, and see the ground. Well, you know, this is where thousands of people lay dead and, and the ground was slick with their blood it, it was it was such a surreal experience. So, I, I I would I would say yeah we have a I I I totally agree with with learning about a thing and creating that mental image, and then experiencing it uh, e- either physically. I think that would be the best way to do it if you can physically go, you know, like 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 I did with Gettysburg, or experience it through a documentary or. Uh, a YouTube video or, or something like that, where you do still get to experience it after a fashion. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there was, while we were in Virginia, there were several battlefields that, that I would have loved to have done that with that. We just didn't have time to, and and we weren't at the point of our, our children's lives to have done that. But, but there were several civil war battlefields around the city we lived in that, that would have been really cool to study in the same way where there were there were very important battles that happened during that war. It just didn't happen. Another thing we were able to do is um, read about Leif Erikson. And there was a Viking ship, a, a replica, uh, that sailed into D.C. And we went and saw it and got to do a tour on the ship. And I I loved it. I thought it was awesome. But... I think they're still a little young to to make all of the connections. I don't know. Maybe that's me looking down on them. That's probably where I need to stop myself and be like, no, they can do that. <laughs> Have you guys had a chance to do any of that kind of stuff? Or, uh, Well, we live in San Antonio, so we have been to the Alamo. Nice. And we just went recently this summer. Um, or kind of in the spring, but it was neat because we had just learned um, we're going through America first and had gotten to the part where Texas is in it. Um, So it was really interesting to take my daughter and let her like look around and see the walls and just be able to look at the front lawn and paint the picture of what that battle must have looked like. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I, I think those field trips, and things like that are just invaluable for our kids, for sure. And I think learning about our local history and taking advantage of all of those is perfect. I agree. Yeah, it's absolutely great. Well, and that's one of the that's one of the great things that we as homeschoolers get to afford our children is a vast number of field trips whenever we feel <laughs> like it during off times from when everybody else would be taking field trips. That's yeah. something I remember is having the run of any place we went to because we would go when there were no other field trips and it would be, you know, five families 
So there might have been <laughs> 10 or 20 kids, and that was it. Mm-hmm. It was great. Right. So how do we begin? We begin to see the lines we must go upon in teaching geography, in talking about the stories, the pleasant bits from the adventures and tales that we've read. For educative purposes, the child must learn such geography and in such a way that his mind shall thereby be stored again with ideas and imagination for images. And for practical purposes, he must learn such geography only as the nature of his mind considered he will be able to remember. In other words, he must learn what interests him. And when the educative and the the practical run in one groove, the geography lesson becomes the most charming occupation of the child's day. Well, in in the start of the next section, she says in the first place, the child gets his rudimentary notions of geography uh, in the same way he gets his first notions of natural science in those long hours out of doors. Of which we've already seen the importance. Yeah, we've apparently already talked we've, about it a lot. We've killed that dead horse a couple times <laughs> and then beat it. <laughs> it's interesting. She says natural science here and not natural philosophy. Oh, really? Yeah. <laughs> That's funny. I realize I read that, but I totally, I totally didn't. So then you've got a pool for a lake and then the stories he's read will come alive. Same as, you know, you you draw a stick. The crooked line is the rhine. And now then you imagine the rest of it. Um, You've got the ruined castles and this dot is this place. And you do that with your home scenery and the interests you're acquainted with. And then you've got the map of your country. And then you've got the places that your mother has been where she can tell you the stories from her mind. Yeah. Those those pictures that you're supposed to have taken in your mind <laughs> throughout the years. And it's always it's always fun to see how the kids are interested in what you did and what you've known. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think her method of this kind of progression of teaching geography to me is just really genius. I mean, she was ahead of her time because, <laughs> you know, you're starting with where the child lives in your own home. Now, when my daughter started her formal lessons, we lived in a small house in a regular suburban yard with a tiny yard. And it was amazing what kind of geography we could learn just at home. So we would be outside and we could observe, you know, where the sun set and where the sun rises. We could observe the slope of our yard And that gave her some kind of a reference. So if we had read a book where it talked about a hill, she would know what a hill was because we had this, even though it was tiny, she knew Mm -hmm. what the hill was because of the yard. We could lay on the ground, pretend if you were an ant looking at that hill, how big would that hill look? It would look like a mountain. So then she had some kind of a frame of reference Mm -hmm. for what a mountain was, even though we live in Texas. We don't have mountains here, (laughs) but we're able to use what we have to be able to give them these references. So, you know, and then we venture a little bit out from our house and we have a river or a creek. Um, You know, we don't have things like waterfalls necessarily, but we might see just a place where water is like going over a little rock and imagine, you know, what if that was like five daddies tall and the water was coming over it. And then she can imagine what a waterfall looks like. So I just love that you can just work with what you have in nature and kind of be able to have this frame of reference for all these different things that are happening all over the world. That's really cool. Well, and it's not even just taking the the sand or the the clay and building it it's it's using what you already have and and scaling it like you were saying the ant size i like that well and okay so so then she goes on to what next she says give him intimate knowledge with the fullest details of any country or region of the world so you've done you've done your hometown your nearby stuff what you're accustomed to and then you go wherever any any country or region of the world any country or district in his own country it's not necessary that he should learn at this stage what is called the geography quote-unquote of the countries of europe the continents of the world more strings of names for the most part 
he can learn these if it's a, if it's tolerable, certainly that he will not, but he will certain. Okay. Hold on. He may <laughs> learn these, but it is tolerable. Certainly that he will not remember them. He He's not going to remember the name of the, the nations or the continents Un, unless it's something that's interesting to him, unless it's something that piques his fancy mm-hmm. and it becomes a part of what he's learning. It, you're not just going to say, you know, point to a map and go Europe, Asia, Africa, North America, South Africa, or South America, Australia, Antarctica. <laughs> Did I get them all? I think so. Yeah. And I think, I think that's a little different than maybe other educational methods. Like if you think of like the classical method. They're going to teach all the names of the countries and all the capitals to very young children. And their hopes are that down the line, they're going to remember those as like rungs on a ladder. And they're going to be able to pull the pieces that they're learning later and put it to the names. But for Charlotte Mason, she thought, we'll learn the names later. Let's put the pictures in their mind now. So it doesn't matter that they know the facts. They don't need to know the capital of, um, you know, different counties or states or anything like that. They just need to have a picture of these few important places in their head. And those can be, you know, places that mother and father have visited. Mm -hmm. Like my husband and I spent time in India before we had kids. So we have focused on that. My family is from the Dominican Republic. So we have learned a lot about that country. So you can just make some connections and it could be just something that they're interested in. Um, But you make those different connections and paint those pictures for them. And then a 10, 11 or 12 year old is going to be able to remember those facts way easier than a six, seven, eight or nine year old. Yeah. Yeah couple summers ago, um, I got the book, Give Your Child the World, and it's book lists from each, mostly each region, and then sometimes it's dialed down to each country. But they're, they're books, they're bo- and they have age ranges. There's picture books for your young children and chapter books for the older children about these places and about... So you can see sympathetically those people and the ways that they're living and what they do, where you are diving deep in the literature, not necessarily from that place, but of that place. So you can see it and experience it and travel there without without going. So that's one I've enjoyed. And I think she does kind of something every year, every summer. It's like a, a read through the read through the world challenge type thing. We have that book and I love it too. It's a beautiful living book. So Mm -hmm. if there's ever like a place that your child's interested in, you can just go to the section and And travel there through a book. Yep. Well, that's really cool. I'm glad that we have that book. (laughs) Go team. (laughs) (laughs) That sounds awesome. (laughs) So next she talks about maps. She says maps must be carefully used in this kind of work. A sketch map following the traveler's progress to be compared finally with a complete map of the region. So is she is she saying that the child should be sketching the map from from what you're reading or you know if that's something they're interested in doing? I don't take that as the child necessarily has to do it, but maybe together like or in my experience maps are usually best used like before a lesson so it might be something the teacher sketched out to show the traveler's progress and then you go through it go through the lesson one way i've seen it done is that you have the map and then as you're going through the book you you kind of dot where they're headed and where they're traveling Okay. We did that with Paddle to the Sea, where he kind of went through the Great Lakes and kind of made his way out. So you had a picture, you had a map of the Great Lakes. So as they were, as he was traveling, you got to see where he was going each time. Huh. Interesting. And then it sounds like at at the end, it can be a narration where you can talk to the child about where did this person go, what happened in these places, 
and by way of testing and confirming their exact knowledge, get those descriptions. Yeah, and I think maps were super important, not just specifically for geography, but they really tie into other subjects, like a lot of history lessons would use a map mm. and be, you'd be able to use a map before the lesson. Even literature would sometimes use a map. So I feel like geography, while it's its own subject, it kind of bleeds into other subjects as well. Mm-hmm. And through maps, it would do that. Well, and, and not only that, it also provides a basis for later understanding as children reach adulthood and look at where to live in a city or how to take a vacation or how to travel from point A to point B. If they have a if they have a an easy familiarity with maps, that just makes things oh so much better in life for them. Oh, I had a Google map pulled up on my computer earlier today and Isaac, our our two year old, came up and he's like, Map <laughs> like, yes, that's a map. Good job, kid. That's awesome. <laughs> we also have a map of Boise and a map of Idaho on our wall behind our kitchen table. And so we, because we just moved here, we don't know the geography of where we live. And so it's been fun to have it there to to point to where things are and what things are going on. And Yeah. So you just mentioned that you moved. And I think maps. One, one of my favorite map resources is a book called Map Making with Children, and it teaches you how to teach, like, the logistics of making maps to your kids, mm-hmm. and it talks about how important maps are for a child to really feel grounded and find their place in the world. So you think, like, if you're in a new city and you don't know anything or anyone or any of the places like the basic necessities where to get your groceries where to um, you know go to a restaurant maps are so useful they're really a guide and can ground you and provide order to what otherwise might be chaos so i think for kids especially who we know are really thrive on order and rhythm and Um, predictability maps are so important well that's so true it it is well and it and and yes it's true for children it's also very true for adults on on our honeymoon we went to hawaii because we were in college and we somehow scrounged up enough money to to go to hawaii (laughs) Um, and we were we were there and we had a little guidebook and we had a couple maps and with the guidebook and the maps we were able to find all kinds mm-hmm. of stuff and things and places. Whereas without those objects, we would have just driven around aimlessly. Because we had no idea where anything was. And- yeah. And that guidebook was a thing that we, that you spent long hours studying to find cool things to look at and do. And, and so with those tools, we were able to experience the place mm-hmm. where without them, we, we would have, we wouldn't have been able to. And, and so I think, you know, again, looking, looking further on in life, yes, these are, these are things that are great of great importance for children, but they're also of great importance for the children when they become adults, because like, like I said earlier with, with familiarity and maps gives the child the freedom to look at a map and find places and go to them yeah, and not be afraid of what's around the corner because, well, you know where the streets are. You see it on the map. It's not a big deal. So anyway. Yes, definitely. So the child should have general knowledge, distinct ideas of the contours, the productions, and the manners of the people in, and of every great region of the world, laid up a store of reliable, valuable knowledge that will last his lifetime, and, you know, also done something to acquire a taste for books and the habit of reading. But don't get books that cover too much. Otherwise, there might be confusion. So Kenna, she kind of wants to keep it a little bit more specific. Yeah, and I think that's just because, you know, somebody, like when I traveled to India, like I just got an intimate knowledge of India. We spent six weeks there. I loved the culture, got to experience Mm -hmm. it. And if I was going to come back and just write a book about the whole, um, you know, general area, India, Asia, it wouldn't be as good as if I wrote a book just about India. So finding those resources that are really specific and have that firsthand knowledge are really important. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah. She says, again, we're considering lessons as instruments of education. And so the, the knowledge of the world will be conveyed also in the readings of the children's hour. And I believe a lot of those readings were done on Sundays. Yeah, I think the children's hour was like that Sunday afternoon reading or in the evenings. And it was really filled with those stories, like just wonderful stories of travel and could be enjoyed by different ages and the whole family instead of presenting it specifically as a lesson during school time. It's just happening kind of more by the way that you're learning about those things. Mm -hmm. Very cool. She kind of just keeps on going into know your local geography and then be able to draw it in the sand, mm. watch a stream, and then you can understand what a river does. Yeah. And like you were saying, you have a creek. So you start with your little creek and then you can go into a river into a or into a stream into a river. Well, and you can use your imagination for those things. It, it's not that you're. You know, you're looking at a stream and then you go to a river and then you go to a to a bigger river and you end up at the Mississippi. You know, you can use your imagination to, again, think of yourself as an ant on the river. How how big would this stream be if you were an ant standing at, it, at the side? Well, it's kind of what she just says. Next. <laughs> <laughs> Children yes. easily simulate the knowledge. So at this point, the teacher has to be careful that nothing which the child receives is just mere verbiage but that every generalization works out some way. The child sees a wide stretch of flat grounds. So the teacher amplifies it. You're reading about Pampas, the flat countries of the northwest of Europe. So this flat country is similar to this greater flat country. And so you can idea get the idea of a plane. And then she goes into some of the, the more the fundamental ideas the, the technical knowledge of geography, how to read the map. You know, you see the seasons, the hot and the cold, rising of the sun, the setting of the sun, the oceans, the sea. Um, and then you say, oh, you notice the crisscross lines on a proper map. <laughs> and now they can ask those questions and figure out, figure out why we do what we do. I think her mention of like, different kinds of maps and a proper map is important because um, in our home, you know, we have different, you know, you might have a globe or you might have a map of just your state or just your country. You might have a world map. So there's different uses for different maps. And really the maps are telling a story too. So if you get a good map, you're able to see where the mountains are. Or you're going to mm -hmm. see where the water's deeper. So I think it's important to first be able to just look at the map and have the children get familiar with it. And then as they get further along, they're going to be able to read the map in a more meaningful way. Have you ever been to one of the children's museums that has the, the lights shining down on the sand where as you, as you build up the sand or build it down, it actually shows the contour lines? Yes. I've not. <laughs> it's so cool because it, it, it put, makes the 2D lines into 3D and you can see exactly what you're, you're looking at. It, it's fascinating. I'll have to find one somewhere and, and take you. But I, when you were talking about seeing on a proper map the differences in depth, that, that brought that to mind. Yeah, that's fascinating. And I think that would be great, like to take the kids there to see that. And that's a great, simple experiment to show, you know, how you can take that knowledge when you're making your own maps. Because mm -hmm. I think for kids, I think she says it on here too, you know, he must learn to draw a plan of his schoolroom, et cetera, according to scales, go on to the plan of a field, consider how to make the plan of his town. So, the kids need to be able to draw these maps also, and that's important for them. Of course, a map of a six-year-old is not going to be as sophisticated <laughs> as a map of a nine-year-old, but just like everything, we're starting small. So they're going to make, you know, if you don't have a schoolroom, start with their bedroom or something like that, something really familiar and simple, and then go outward from there. Uh, that's back in Outdoor Life for Children, page 77. 
talking about compass drills and boundaries and yeah. plans and and it's all related. It's all connected. So back to back to the topographical sand map with the light thing on it that shines lines. One memory, one distinct memory I have from from when I was in school is we were studying Greece and Grecian history and and you know Alexander the Great and all of the stuff with that. And we built a salt topographical map mm-hmm. of Greece. And it was one of the coolest things we did. Cause we we you know, you can see a topograph you can see a topographical map and you can see that there's a bunch of little lines. But then when you actually build it, you know, looking at this, and it was it it had to be the size of the, the table we're sitting at. It was a it was a giant thing. Um or maybe I think so because I was smaller, but whatever, it was huge. And and it was fascinating to look at Greece and just see the 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 mountains and the cliffs and the the great changes in elevation. It it gave it gave a, a hugely different understanding of everything we were we were reading. I think at the time we were reading through the Iliad and the Odyssey. And it- it gave it new depths. It gave it new, yeah, yeah. It, it elevated, it elevated it to new heights. Even, oh my gosh! Sorry, I didn't mean to derail you. <laughs> yeah, that's all right. It's an important principle to bear in mind: the child who gets no ideas from considering the map, say of Italy or of Russia, has no knowledge of geography, however many facts about places he may be able to produce. Therefore, he should begin this study by learning the meaning of a map and how to use it. And that's something, just kind of pulling back in broad picture, that's something I'm finding a lot of Form 1, a lot of what's going on in home education is learning how to learn and learning how to use the tools, learning how to read a map, learning how to draw a map, uh, even just simply learning how to read. You're, You're, especially in these first couple of years, just doing the building blocks. Yeah, I totally agree with that. And I think for kids to learn at this young age how to read a map and how to use a map, it really opens up doors for them because once they start reading on their own, like my daughter reads independently and reads more books than I can pre-read or (laughs) read with her, but she sometimes will come to me and have questions about places in her book. And she's able to go to a map for reference and see where these places are and learn about them. So it really opens the door for them to be able to educate themselves even more outside of lessons. Yeah. Well, and I know, so we recorded the chapter 21, the pictorial art. Uh, We recorded that last week, I think. Um, so a teaser for what's to come in pictorial art, a lot of what we're doing is just the same thing as we're practicing drawing mm. in various mediums. We're, we're just, we're just practicing. We're building those building blocks. Mm-hmm. The same is true. Oh yeah. Arithmetic was last week. Sorry. I'm looking over at the schedule of when we release these things because <laughs> we've, we've, uh, we record we've, out of order. Yeah, we've been recording out of order. But arithmetic is the same way where you're you're just learning the building blocks and, and you you will do so much more with that. But you're you're learning the building blocks, you're learning the application of those and and more will come later. But even then, it it's it's still taught in such a way that the child is still uh, fascinated and enraptured by the work that they're doing. Mm-hmm. She ends with saying it is only when geography is presented to the child for the first time in the form of stale knowledge and foregone conclusions that the facts taught in such a lesson appear dry and repulsive to him. An effort should be made to treat the subject with a sort of sympathetic interest and freshness which attracts children to a new study. Kind of goes back to her earlier quote or somebody's quote of the, the flowers aren't new, but the children are. Yeah. Well, Megan, any last thoughts on on geography? I just think, like I said before, like geography is so important because of our culturally connected world. And especially in this time where we have, you know, 
a lot of social change going on where we're trying to appreciate other cultures that might be different from us. I think all of that starts when our children are really young and they're learning and we can be presenting geography in a way of really appreciating different parts of the world, even though, you know, our kids, their world is really small when they start. It's our home in our backyard and we have to make their world get a little bit bigger and a little bit bigger each year so that by the time they're adults that they have this real respect for all humans all over the world so i feel like it's just such an important subject that weaves through all of the different subjects let me tangent on that real quick would you think maybe a lot of the issues that are arising is due to an improper knowledge of geography in the way Mason is talking about it? Well, I mean, definitely throughout history, you know, if we're not learning about the people, the, the people who are living in these different places, I, I don't think we can really appreciate our similarities, what differences we have. And, you know, especially when we get into history and different wars and things that are going on, you know, border disputes and the way that our countries were put together and made. I think there's just so much that we can learn by learning about the people who lived in all these places. And I, I think you do have a different viewpoint if you've had this experience of learning this way. Yeah, that makes sense. Cool. Well, I have no, I have no further thoughts. <laughs> Megan, thank you so much for joining us for this talk. It's been a lot of fun to talk with you about it. Yeah, thank you guys so much. Yeah. Uh, Megan, if you will, tell us or tell our listeners, uh, since clearly I already know, I guess, <laughs> tell our listeners uh, one more time where, where they can find you online um, and and some of the stuff that they'll they'll find when they look you up. Sure. You can find me over at RudyChildhood.com. And you'll find I have lots of blog posts about how we homeschool with the Charlotte Mason method and my monthly collections with handicrafts, songs, stories, poems, and lots of goodies for young children. And you can also find me on Instagram at Rudy Childhood. Thank you. Well, there you go. Megan, thanks. This has been wonderful having you on the show. I'm so glad you were able to join us. Yeah, thank you guys so much for asking me. This was really fun. Thanks for listening. Don't forget about the Charlotte Mason Inspired Online Conference. If you're interested in receiving the recorded audio and video, please find info at any of our social media places, our website, or our emails. We hope to see you there.